This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. In my journey of following the path of Benjamin Franklin and his Friday night roundtable dinner discussions, I am ready to share with you now part two of the dinner party that I had held recently in London. My esteemed guests include baritone and Royal Opera House chorus member Oliver Gibbs, mezzo-soprano actor and writer Liza Graham, Portuguese tenor Alberto Souza, pianist and artistic director of the London Song Festival Nigel Foster, conductor and artistic director of Fulham Opera Ben Woodward, the vicar of St. John's Church Fulham Father Mark Osborne, and soprano Catherine Rogers Woodward. In an evening marked by sometimes raucous British humor, this dinner stands out in my mind as a rewarding evening of sharing. I was fascinated by the intimacy of trust that defined the evening, of friends who shared the greatest power between them, the power of art. Once again, please remember that with dinner parties comes the sounds of silverware and wine glasses singing. So let's carry on. The magic is in the conversation. Liza, tell us a little bit about where we are, actually. This is your apartment. Yes. Um, we are on the Cut, uh, a street uh, just south of the river uh, in the center of London. From my window, I can see the London Eye. That's that big Ferris wheel. Um, we're not far from Waterloo Station. Uh, the interesting thing about this side of the river is that um, it did not used to be subject to the same laws as the rest of the city of London. Really? So this was where all the entertainment was. This was where the theaters were. This is where uh, Shakespeare and his company had their Globe Theater. Uh, Philip Henslow, another Elizabethan dramatist, had the Rose Theater just down the block. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also uh, blood sports, uh, boxing rings, uh, rings for bear baiting and bull baiting, uh, which are sports uh, which we today would view as being very cruel to the animals involved. Um, but the Elizabethan sense of place was very, uh, was uh, you know, very di- very different from ours. Um, the, uh, you know, so south of the river uh, was technically a, a lot of it was under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Winchester, who had his palace just along from here. Um, and instead of trying to shut down the local prostitutes, he took a percentage of their earnings. Oh! And how things change. And so the prostitutes uh, locally were known as Winchester geese. And they adopted this name with some pride. They had a habit of hissing at people who annoyed them. So uh, wow. that, that is maybe a little more information than you wanted about where we are, but it's where we are. <laughs> This is really interesting. And you're American. We should make that perfectly clear. We can hear the little American accent. I I do still have an American accent. I tried, uh, I've lived in this country for over 20 years. When I first got here, I tried to assimilate and sound British. Uh, It's a bit like the Borg. Yes. Um, we are Another Star Trek reference tonight. Our second. We are we are the British Borg. You, you might be assimilated if you feel like it. No pressure. Sorry. Sorry. Wait, wait. Resistance is futile. No, I think That's resistance may be futile. We're not quite sure. We'll get back to you on that. Resistance is un-British. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, thank you for having us in, in your fantastic. Department. So, are you guys ready for the second question? Yes. All right, so tonight, 
being particularly um, um, reverential to the Ben Franklin idea, we're going to look at the 13 virtues that he would hand down in his dinner parties. And you all have them in front of you. Do, would anyone like to read these for our listeners right now? Come on, Ollie. Let's, let's have a read. Ooh. Read us the 13 virtues. Uh, well, number one is temperance. Mm. Number two is silence, which we've already mentioned. We've, we've mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Number three is order. Number four, resolution. Number five, frugality. Number six, industry. Number seven, sincerity. Number eight, justice. Number nine, moderation. Number ten, cleanliness. Number eleven, chastity. Number twelve, tranquility. And number thirteen, humility. Humility comes at the end, isn't that It did sound remarkably like he was reading the football scores, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to know the virtues, look away now. Like, I would make a football scores joke, but it's for the American audience. They, they, it's another definition of football in time. They, they may not get it it's like, uh, Chastity? Nil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. All We're right. to talk about humility with a conductor in the room. Oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. Humility may be his power source. You know? Um, Someone else has humility. There's always another way of looking at it. All right. Prepare yourselves for the second question tonight. Is there, using one of the 13 virtues, I'd like you to answer this question. And I'd like you to answer this as seriously as you can. Is there one moment in your life that was a cathartic moment that established you as the artist that you are today? Really think about this, because I think there always is a turning point in everyone's lives, especially as artists. It's such a difficult path. And whether you're in, the, in theology, or whether you're a singer, or a pianist, conductor, it doesn't matter. We all face a sort of Waterloo at times, and maybe it's that Waterloo that when we break through it, we come to the other side that really makes us who we are. It reminds us why we're in the arts. Oh, we have very, very serious faces here. I love it. Anything come to mind? Well, this is an edit point. <laughs> the thing, the thing is, this, this is such a huge question mm-hmm. for us that we've talked about that we, we're desperately going, what's the one point? Why not we go for the Rolodex of stuff? And it's a, it's a bit of a mining exercise. What are we going to, both in terms of what are we going to find that we can remember, that we can still remember, also, what should we remember? Well, certainly in lots of people around this table, our careers as they presently are, are still in a, a little bit of a state of scattergun effect. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Although this is a question about how you are as an artist rather than where you are with your career, which is yeah. a, a, two exactly. different things. Mm-hmm. But I don't... I don't feel like... I'm not sure I've had that moment yet. I still don't feel like I've had that moment yet, which could be wrong. That is absolutely a fair answer. Kat, can you use one of the 13 virtues right now while you answer this question? Um, I think the shift for me... It's been slow because my discovery of my instrument has been very slow. It's really weird that I've known since I was a tiny child that all I wanted to do was be a singer. But I don't think I recognised my own voice until really quite recently. 
And because I hadn't found my voice, I couldn't see the virtue in industry. Practice warming up things didn't work for me because I didn't get better by doing, you know, it's very hard to learn how to practice. And I think that's probably the biggest shift for Mm -hmm. me in the last few years is becoming somebody who wants to practice, who wants to improve their skill in that way because I finally have the tools to do it. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, you know, I had some bad teaching experiences and I do remember one teacher that I worked with who insisted that I do one particular exercise and it hurt. <laughs> so I knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't bring myself to sing in a way that physically caused me pain. I did not see how that could possibly be the right way forward. And so I felt very, very trapped for a very long time. Mm-hmm. In that all I wanted to do was sing, but I didn't know how to do it properly. It does not come naturally to me. Um, so it's been a real... So working how, working at how to work has been the thing that I feel like I'm on a journey with. And you feel you found the answer there, the way in? Yes. That's marvellous. It's your fault. That's your voice. <laughs> I'm so happy. As, as, as your voice teacher, as by I, the way, my, yeah. my website is. I'm available to teach you, boys. <laughs> it should rather be Kat's website so we can all go to it and hear her sing. Um, Liza, I feel it welling up. It's going to be a volcano in a moment. Well, um,. There are virtues that I don't see on this list, although I, I know that virtues are legion. As um, uh, <laughs> oh, you There's well, always one that has to stray from the script. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I have to say okay. I do agree. I, I'm, I'm missing a couple of virtues here. Yeah. I mean, where's fortitude? Where's diligence? Where's reason? Where's love? Reason is not a virtue. Is love? Well, being, but, no, love is is a character. But is, it's, not, it's not part of the virtues, the seven virtues. But is oh, yeah, reason not contained within justice, and is mm. diligence contained within industry? What, what about fidelity? That's no, I think the, we're straying from the question a little bit, you know? And the fact that this is based around a Benjamin Franklin dinner, and these are his 13 virtues used at the time, which is our template. Mm. And that's what we Stick to the script, like yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to speak of frugality. Oh. Okay. Um and when we think of being frugal today, we think of it in the sense of, you know, we think of it largely in a material sense, in a financial sense, of living within your means, of um you know, making do um Although our generation, of course, has far um, has far less practice at making do than, say, the ones who predeceased us, the ones who went through the wars, uh, through the period of real, actual, imposed austerity that Britain went through. Um, fr- but I want to speak about frugality in the artistic sense. And I think when we were speaking earlier about silence, we were speaking about pauses and how if you're if the train of your thought in speech or in song is continuing through the pause that pause only has a certain maximum length that it can be you can stretch it so far and then it loses its tension and the piece of art unbalances 
So that's kind of a guiding light for me in all the forms of art that I do. When I'm to do what is necessary, to sense what is necessary, and not necessary, and to look askance at anything that exceeds that. For example, when I'm writing, um, there's the whole thing, writerly thing of kill your darlings, right? You know, um, and, and there, there's this whole, oh, I love that bit, I love that bit, don't cut that bit. Um, but if it's not necessary, you have to then ask yourself why it should be included. And I think one of the biggest faults an artist can make is to indulge the self at the expense of the work. Mm-hmm. The work always has to come first. And um, yes, you sing that top note pianissimo really well. Um, maybe you shouldn't do it for the sixth time. <laughs> um, you know, that, uh, that sort of yep. thing. Uh, so, yeah, um, just even if you, no matter what you're doing, just stripping things down to a, the absolute bones of necessity. Uh, I'll close with a quote from, uh, or as well as I can remember, from an author who we very recently lost, Ursula Le Guin. Um, she spent much of her life writing and returning to uh, a character called Ged, who's a magician. And in, you know, he starts off as a young wizard when she's a young author, and she keeps writing about him at intervals until he's an old wizard. And she, uh, and she herself has age and experience uh, as an author. And Ged finally says, my entire life I've spent learning only to do what I cannot, what I, what I cannot choose but to do, what I have no choice but to do. Um, so, I don't know. Le Guin was a was a Taoist, and um, I'm not an expert in the Tao Te Ching. Perhaps some listening are, but the, um, there's a lot to be said for a certain frugality of spirit. All right. Okay. Certainly, it calls with Benjamin Franklin's view on frugality only doing what you absolutely have only resolving to do that which you have to do and then carrying out mm-hmm. what you have resolved to do to the utmost mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. it's inspiring I think there's a lot of people around this table who <coughs> take the, 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 yeah, the spirit of what Liza just said <laughs> there's not a lot, lot of logic in terms of us Choosing to do what we do. Mm. Right, let's do this as a career. This is, this is going to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. I can I see pianists, doctors, <laughs> singers, teachers, and a bit more sense in being a priest, but only a bit. But, uh, but, uh, according to whose scale, though? I mean, what more valuable thing can there be? Oh. Than to, than to make beauty. Oh, no, I, I, I'm not arguing against it. I'm saying, but on, on how we... How many people proceed from their view of logic is like, how can we survive? Let's choose to do this to survive in the current context of how the world is. It's not a logical progression. You would, and, and the thing is, and I especially find it with people I've known in the music-making world, and singers particularly, 
that why are you doing this? How can you actually make a living out of this? You must be mad. I must be mad. We all must be mad. Mm. And it's it comes back to lies. Lies are saying it's about well, you end up being unable to stop wanting to do it, and you end up finding a way of making it work. But if you have a passion for it, you'll do it. Mm. Yes, but there's still people who have However, a passion. For, there's still people who have a passion for it who are unable to make it happen, mm. and and I feel sorry for them. But yeah. but all of us are kind of you know up one week or year or month and then down the next and it's kind of uh, so, so the, what free is it? For, for the freelance world in which we work in but so Ollie Gibbs what is it that made it happen for you it comes back and I, I'm glad that we had a sort of a bit of a round mm-hmm. a, a go round before we came back because I, it kind of crystallised that if I want, if you want to, uh, not like Proust, Madeleine. It's actually before that. Yeah, in terms of the thing that kind of you always come back to that you can't escape from. Um, it's when I was about three or four in uh, my mum and dad's flat at home in West Hampstead, and uh, they used to have the piano, upright piano, in the hallway, which is where mum, who was a repetitor, and dad, who was my late father, was a baritone. Um, and he, he never got a chance to do it, but he was obsessed with singing Falstaff. So he always wanted to kind of prepare the, the hey, Paggio and Ladri, all the kind of Falstaff arias and you know, the, the, the excerpts. And when I, mean, I, so I was about three or four, and my room was right next to the, where the piano was in the hallway. So behind the door, I was three or four, sitting next to the door, listening to Mum playing the piano and Dad singing Falstaff. And I remember that those that sound, those so- that, you know, those songs, that, that, that music then. So if you want to kind of go back to the initial, the thing that kind of, mm-hmm. the worm that gets into you, that never goes away, that's it. That's it. <coughs> and despite being from a musical family, they were never thrusting music on me all the time. Yes, they encouraged it, but it was never like, oh, do this. It was, but exactly, it was more like the accidental me hearing them doing it when it wasn't me directly involved in it that got that got into my head I if you really want to go back to the original thing so. I love that image of him being on the other side of the door and just listening and soaking all this up and knowing kind of that this is what you were going to do did I know what I was going to do that? I don't know but looking back on it of course you, being a four, you have no idea but looking back on it you can see where the unrootable seed or the, or the un the unremovable seed was planted that could always go, and then that was always going to be a thing that I could never get away from, mm-hmm. however, however much you try to get away from it in the mm-hmm. interim. Do you think that might be tranquility, the tranquility of childhood? I, I was going to ask that too. Yeah. Or, yeah. or maybe silence. silence. <laughs> Just you being able to I, listen to Because oh. it sounds, I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds like there was much more than simply false stuff. It was, it was the love, the relationship between your parents and. Of course, there were a lot of course. passions going on. Of course, there's all those passions, but it's interesting how you come up to it because you because Pam mentioned a certain moment, mm-hmm. and actually, if I, if, you, if I had to distill it down to absolutely a moment, and especially that that, that false thing is that ladri, come back to what we were saying earlier. There's that silence before he carries on and it's actually and it's the silence it wasn't just like dad was singing yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like boom and then a silence to let that thought drop it's interesting in a way the silence Please after me. dad singing on the other side of the door with mum playing the total mm-hmm. 
mm. knitted me into that. But that left a mark on you, that yeah. music, yeah, yeah, the pattern yeah. of it, and, and wow, wow, how interesting. Okay, I, I sense you, you know, chomping at the bit here. Squirming with the more. <laughs> <laughs> As oh, now, wait, wait, you lived in the States, you've got a sense of drama. Um, can we make a film about this? Oh, God. Um... The question, the, que- the, que- the question was about a pivotal moment, wasn't Good. it? Um, and what? A, so I grew up in Staffordshire, which is sort of halfway between Manchester and Birmingham. And one of the things that Staffordshire had was a ridiculously good public music department. Mm-hmm. Um, visiting music teachers would come into all of the schools and teach you, you know, if you're six years old and you like the look of a clarinet, you can have clarinet lessons. Back then, in the you know, mid-late 80s, free of charge. It was all good. Which then continued through, and with that, there was, um, the, the peripatetic music staff had orchestras and ensembles, and they would come in and do various performances in your primary school and such. And the most... The kind of pivotal moment for me, as far as I know, it will be probably on page two of my autobiography. Um, <laughs> I have to find enough time to write it. Um, uh, so the staff string orchestra came into my primary school, which, I mean, just thinking about it now in the state of, you know, <laughs> the amount of money that would have cost the, the county is remarkable, thinking of it right now. But I reckon there must have been... 30 or 40 piece string orchestra and I think they might have done Bach's third Brandenburg that's as I you know, remember it with rose tinted mm-hmm. spectacles and all that um, and they had a conductor who was did the job, it was fun and of course to a room full of well the maximum would have been 11 but I think it was younger than that, I think we were about 9 and the room was full of kids and they were like so Who'd like to have a go at conducting, kids? <laughs> now we know who to blame. This <laughs> oh, is not about blame. <laughs> blame is not one of the 13 <laughs> virtues. <laughs> well, is there room for 14? <laughs> Resolution 1, blame nil. This is winding up well. Okay. No, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to spin the story. Um, so I, I was... Naturally, I, I was dragged out because I'd shown... I played the piano in the school assembly and stuff, and I played the hymns that we had in our school assembly. So I was like, Ben, you do, you do this kind of stuff. Why don't you come and conduct the staff orchestra? I was like, all right, well, as far as I remember from my grade one, you know, if it's three in the bar, it goes down, right and up. So I did this, and, um, uh, of course, if it was the third Brandenburg, it's definitely not in three. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> Nitpicker's guide. <laughs> so I stood up and I conducted the staff auction, whatever the piece was. And I remember the school headmistress who played the piano atrociously. I can still remember her playing the hymns with her foot on the on the pedal the whole way through. Um, and she stood there and I said, "Then why don't you speed up and slow down and watch them follow and see if they can follow you?" And whatever this piece was. So I did, and they did absolutely follow me. I mean, we took it to the absolute extremes of far too slowly <laughs> and far too quickly. And this staff orchestra, they, they, they did my bidding. <laughs> and, um, and that was kind of the start of the conducting thing. 
And it's kind of gone from there. And so the only one of these I can really pick is industry. Because from that, the whole thing has been a case of working towards more. Oh, most of the gigs, um, and certainly four people around this, well, actually five yourself, you know, have all performed or just workshopped gigs which I have put together. Mm-hmm. I have made them happen. Yeah. Uh, we did a John Passion in Greenwich, Connecticut and New York City and that was because of the sheer willpower and desire and need to do it mm-hmm. um, which goes along with what I think what Liza was saying about you know, the need to create this thing uh, we've got we've just done our tello because it needed to be done Ali sang Iago and um, it was it had to be done we had to fight this thing into existence um, no, Kat and I are obviously now married. Um, several gigs, so the Falstaff, because Ollie was in as well. Alberto, the first opera we actually did. Alberto and I were in opera school together. Yes. And then, of course, I dragged you into a mall and the night visitors. Uh, yes, that is true. Right? <laughs> the Menotti yeah. Opera, designed for City Opera in New York, wasn't it? Um, and Alberto was the half-deaf king. Yes. And these are all things. And then, you know, to go round the table... Nigel played for some of the ring cycle audition, not auditions, rehearsals is the word I'm looking for, which yeah, we forced together. And poor Father Mark has been on the proverbial receiving end of all this <laughs> because I've completely overtaken his church. Of course, then we'll do even song for 40 voices in a teeny wee little run down in a city church. Why wouldn't we do even song for 40 voices? Well, I was, think- I was thinking. And the chamber orchestra. And the chamber orchestra. Yeah, of course The payoff is great. And so. Well, God enjoys it. Well. No, but we all enjoy it. Here's the next question. God is horrified. Does God enjoy the ring song? <laughs> I, I hope people. I don't know. I don't know if you use this in the introduction, but I, I hope people uh, listening understand that Ben here, who is truly a, mod- a, a model of industry, has put on a full ring cycle in you know a church in Fulham, in, in Father Mark's church in Fulham, uh, with um, a, a, and it's been a, an extraordinary completely uncut. Okay. Yes, uncut. <laughs> Talk about industry. Well, yes. yeah, so that is that is Lunacy. what I have to offer. Lunacy. <laughs> Lunacy isn't on the list. <laughs> With his dinners, Ben Franklin set forth a template that would encourage the art of conversation for generations to follow. And we have taken his lead on center stage to remind all of us that relationships and hearty discussions are the greatest privileges that we can build in this life. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. Mm-hmm.